The following audio is from the Sunday morning worship service at First Baptist Church in Clayton. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcclayton.com. This morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. Feels good to say, that probably feels good to hear too, that we're finally out of, out of chapter 1 and I'm moving on to chapter 2. Uh, so this morning we're looking at uh, gospel struggles. Now, back before Christmas, we, uh, we were in uh, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 24, 25, and we, we looked at gospel sufferings. Um, and, and this morning it's a little bit different. Uh, so we, in, in sufferings, we looked at uh, Paul saying he rejoices in his sufferings, and that basically we said that as a believer, as a Christian, you can expect to suffer in this world um, because the message that we have is so anti-world. It's, it's so um, opposed to the messages that come out of the world. And so Jesus uh, said himself that uh, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so this morning, it, it's not quite the same. It's, this morning when we look at gospel struggles, uh, we're going to look at Paul struggling on behalf of the Colossian believers, struggling in prayer so that they might be mature in Christ. Um, now let's recap real quick. Uh, we've, we've said from the beginning, Paul has probably never been to Colossae. Uh, in fact, he, he meets, uh, most likely while he's in prison, uh, a man named Epaphras from Colossae and a man named Onesimus, um, who are members. Maybe Epaphras might be the pastor of the church there in Colossae. We're not really sure. Um, but Paul hears of their faith. He's encouraged. So he sends this letter to them as an encouragement uh, to them. Uh, he prays for, he tells them he prays for them regularly uh, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Then he breaks out in a, this song of praise in verses 15 through 23, chapter, uh, chapter 1 of a uh, song of praise to Christ who he is the creator and the sustainer. And then as we said, he talks about suffering uh, for the sake of the gospel. Then last week we, we talked about this mystery of God, uh, which he says is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so that brings us now to chapter 2. And so if you will stand with me as we read the word of God together. I want to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 28, just to give us a little context going in. Uh, so starting Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Uh, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And I pray this morning as we look at Paul struggling on behalf of the believers at Colossae and at Laodicea, that, uh, that we will see the importance of struggling for our brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer, um, that, that we will see that wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ, uh, and that that may protect us from the attacks 
of the enemy. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. And as we, uh, we're going to jump right in here. Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul says he's struggling in prayer for the believers at Colossae, the believers at Laodicea, which was a town about 10 miles away from Colossae, whom he had never seen face to face. And, and I get the sense here as I read this that, that he, he feels a, a special burden for these churches whom he's never met. Um, for instance, the church at Ephesus, uh, he, had a, he had a very key part in, and Timothy, his son in the faith, as he calls him, is the pastor at Ephesus. Uh, Corinthians, or uh, Corinth, he had been to the church at Corinth several times. Um, you look at uh, the churches in Galatia, he had passed through there, so he knew them personally. He knew exactly what was going on and exactly what to say to them. In Colossae, in Laodicea, he had never been there. He'd never met them face to face. And so I get the sense that he struggles, especially in prayer for them, that, that they might hear the word of Christ, they might, they might follow the word of God and be strengthened in their faith. And, and, I th- and I get the sense that he's burdened because he can't see them, because as he's writing this, he's, he's in prison and struggling on their behalf before the Father because he can't be there to encourage them face to face. Now, as we, as we looked last week at verses 28 and 29 at the end of chapter 1, uh, especially verse 29, for this I toil, he toils to present everyone mature in Christ, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That word struggling is an athletic term. So it's, it's similar to the way a Greek runner would, re- would prepare for the Olympics. And so what he's saying is, I am struggling in prayer on your behalf the way a Greek athlete would prepare for the Olympics. That's how, that's how committed he is to these folks whom he's never met. Uh, he exerts himself the way an athlete exerts himself. I find that fascinating. And I find that as a pastor a challenge to me uh, to be struggling in prayer on your behalf the same way. Um, and so, so he says that he prays for them, uh, for all those who I've never seen face to face. And what does he pray for? We see that in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So he prays, first of all, that they would be knit together, that they would be unified. Now this is especially important in light of this false teaching that's occurring. And as I've said before, we're not exactly sure what this false teaching is. He never lays that out. Instead, what he does is he draws our attention to Christ. And so he prays that they would be united in the faith as believers, um, gaining full assurance. So in light of this false teaching, he, he prays not that this teaching would be barred, but that the believers might be united in faith in Christ and in love for one another so that they could withstand the false teaching. Um, and so here's what we see there. As we live together in a community of faith, as we are members of the body of Christ, um, as we grow closer in love to one another in the church, that should strengthen and encourage our faith in Christ. 
And as we grow in our faith and our relationship with Christ, that should strengthen our relationships with one another. Uh, so our love for Christ should cause us to love others, and our love for others should cause us to love Christ all the more. You see the cycle that goes on here. It's not um, love people or love God. It's, it's a combination of the two. We're called to love God, which should um, then spill out into our neighbor. That's what Jesus said, right? Matthew 22, and he's asked what the greatest commandment is. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Our love for God should cause us to love others more. And as we love others more, our obedience to that command will cause us to walk in closer relationship with God. That's the way it's designed to work. So that's the first thing he prays, that they would be knit together in love. And then he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So he prays not only that they would be united in their love for one another, but that they would be united in their faith, in their knowledge of God. Um, now, it's important to know when he talks about this mystery, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, if this false teaching is, is this thing called Gnosticism or an early form of it, what they would claim is that um, there is this wisdom that is locked up inside of you that you have to find. That it's, it's very mysterious and, and full knowledge of God is really to be found within yourself. And, and there are only a few who will reach um, the point where they find it. And so Paul, if you see, is kind of using the same terminology that these false teachers are using. But God's mystery is not something hidden, not something that only a few can find. He says it's Christ. It's been revealed. And, and, and at the end of chapter 1, he says, he calls this, um, uh, verse 25, uh, I'm sorry, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. As we talked last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 1, where it said in, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers at various times and in many places, so at bits and pieces, he revealed himself, and when Christ, he revealed himself fully. And so Paul would say this mystery is not something that is secret and only a few can find it. God has revealed it to the world in Christ. That is his mystery, that salvation is now not available just to the Jews, but to all people. So Christ is not just a key to this mystery. He's not just a prophet to this, to this mystery. He's not just a good teacher. Christ himself is the mystery. If you'll flip back a few pages uh, to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, you'll go, go back from Colossians, you'll hit Philippians, and then Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, Paul says this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You may know what is, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height 
and depth of the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. So this mystery is not something that only a select few have. We all have access to it through the person of Christ. That in Christ, we see what God is like. Um, as the book of Hebrews said, he is the uh, exact representation of God, the, the exact imprint of his nature. So in Christ, we see who God is. We see what God is like. And then Paul says this, that in Christ, God, knowledge of God's mystery, which is, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I want to talk about this just for a minute. Um, our world today will say that uh, knowledge can be found in a lot of places. Um, you will hear many people say that science is ultimate knowledge. Um, Paul here makes very clear, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So apart from Christ, you cannot have true wisdom. You cannot have true knowledge. Science is good. History is good. They show us things, but it's only when we have a faith that is grounded in the truths of Christ Jesus that science truly begins to make sense. If not, you're just descended from a monkey. Good luck. Because my, ne never mind, I won't go into monkeys. That's, that's a discussion for another day. But look at what Paul says here. The, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if they are a treasure, then that means they're, they're worth searching for. They're worth finding. Remember the parable of the hidden treasure that Matthew, or that Jesus spoke about? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasures of the wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. Are treasures worth spending your entire life searching out for? Just like the man who found a treasure, buried it back, went and sold everything he had to go buy that field. Can you imagine him explaining this to his family? Because I dare say he's not going to tell anybody that he found a treasure there, right? And so he goes, uh, uh, Mom, here's what I'm going to do. Or, or honey, imagine how that goes. Honey, we're selling everything. We're selling the house. We're selling the camels. We're going to sell the kids. No, we can't sell the kids. Um, we'll sell, all right, sell the couches, sell everything, and we're going to go buy a field. You're going to, what? We're going to go buy a field. Why? Just trust me, okay? I, I'll tell you how that conversation would go in my house, okay? Daddy wouldn't be selling nothing, okay? <laughs> all right? But it's worth selling everything. They found a treasure so valuable, he sold everything to go and to buy the field that had the treasure so the treasure could be his. The treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God that are hidden in Christ Jesus. They're worth searching for. And they're found right here. This is how we know Christ. This is how we come to know God and his plan for our lives. And it's worth spending our lives searching for this treasure. 
go to verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, we need to understand that Satan is very crafty. He's, he's bright. He will not approach us with things that are unattractive to us. If, if Satan is going to try to get at us, he's going to try to get at us with things that look nice, with arguments that sound feasible. Okay? So, in, in the whole um, science versus religion debate, which I think, if, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I think that's people who try to pit two things against each other that are not necessarily against each other, that can work in conjunction with one another when they're each viewed in their proper context. But in the science versus religion debate, um, Satan's not going to come in here and say, uh, let's, let's trick humans into thinking that um, instead of being created by God, that uh, that maybe they were just planted there by aliens. Let's just put that out there. Okay? Now, believe it or not, there are some who would choose that story over the Bible, that we were planted here by aliens. Again, that's a, that's a, that's a topic for another day. But he's going to come at us with these plausible arguments. Well, maybe, maybe things just happened. And so that over millions and millions and millions and millions of years, things went from a single organism to life as we know it. No one may delude you with plausible arguments. So here's, here's the thing. Paul is very encouraging here. So he doesn't say that the Colossians have already been deceived. He's telling them to search for the treasures of wisdom and knowledge uh, in Christ so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He doesn't come on harshly here like he does in Galatians, where the churches in Galatia have apparently already begun uh, to go astray because of false teaching. Here he's encouraging them, saying, I'm telling you this so that you can protect yourselves against this false teaching that's coming up. Um, now, here's what we need to understand, okay? False teachings will creep up. If, if we're not careful... We've got to look for them from the outside, from, from the world, the way that the world would try to attack the church with, with ideas and thoughts. But if we're not careful, we've got to, we might be deceived from inside the church as well. Because there, there are false teachings even in mainline, even in evangelical churches. Um, let, me, let me give just a couple of uh, examples here. Um, if, if you've ever heard or ever heard anything that sounds like God helps those who help themselves, that, that is not in here. You will not find that in here. The message of the gospel is that God helped us because we could not help ourselves. But what you'll hear, and, and, and we talked about this last week, where we get into this moralistic, uh, therapeutic um, preaching where you have to say the right things, you have to do the right things, you have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, um, and then we kind of throw God's name in there just to make it all sound uh, religion-y. 
that is really this idea that God helps those who help themselves, that if you are good enough, then God will accept you, or he will take you along the path. He will, he will carry you farther. And that's not the way it goes. The, the, the way the gospel is, is laid out is that Christ came because we were powerless to save ourselves. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so that's one way that the false teaching can kind of creep up, even maybe in well-meaning preachers. Um, if, if we're not careful, we can, we can slip onto these things. Uh, the other one that's probably the most obvious in our world today is this prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel. Uh, if you follow Christ, if you, if you turn your life over to God and are surrendered to Him, uh, then everything will go well. You'll be healthy and you'll be rich. Problem is, as we've looked at, that doesn't work. And I, and I promise, in every church where that's preached, there's someone dying of cancer and someone whose finances are falling apart. That's, that's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that we have eternal life and eternal riches in heaven. We're never promised wealth here. We're never promised um, that, that our days will be healthy and pain-free here. That's just, not, that's just not the way it goes. We live in... Uh, jars of clay, as the, as the Bible puts it. Earthen vessels, maybe, is, is how your, uh, your copy of Scripture puts it. Things that shatter easily. And, and so we've got to have a proper view of the gospel, not one that says, well, just, just show up, and, and all of a sudden your bank account's going to go through the roof, and you're not going to have any financial concerns. That's, that's not the promise. The promise is that no matter what happens to our financial situation, our, our foundation is in Christ. So that even should my bank account um, tank, even should the stock markets crash and all of a sudden my retirement fund is no longer, it's not the best place to be in this world, but, but my faith is not in that. It's in Christ. And, and here's the other thing that we need to remember when it comes to these plausible arguments that the world would bring um, against Christianity or or. Just, say, just use reason, as they would say. Just reason. Um, the Bible never promises that what God is doing is going to make sense to the world. In fact, it pretty much says just the opposite. Um, for instance, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, if you want to go there, that's fine. Just turn back to the left uh, a little ways. Um, if not, you can just listen, and um, I promise I'm reading it from the Bible. I'm not making this up. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And that, uh, uh, Paul quotes there from uh, Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Do you see what he said there? The word of the cross, the message of the cross, the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. They think it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on and basically says, I'm going to do something that uh, will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So those who claim to be smart, those who claim to be wise, I'm going to do something that's going to absolutely baffle them and that they're not going to understand. God never promises that what he's doing will make sense 
to the world. And I think if we're being honest, sometimes those of us who are, who are believers and who've put our faith in Christ, sometimes God does something that makes us scratch our heads. Maybe most of the time he does something that makes us scratch our heads. If for no other reason, then we have to remember what he says in Isaiah. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Whereas the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know what he said there? Trust me, puny humans. You don't know what's going on. And in fact, if you go back to the book of Job, when Job starts questioning God for all that's, all that's gone on, God lets him rant for a while. And then, at the end of the book of Job, God speaks up. And one of his first words when he speaks to Job is, dress like a man. In other words, put your big boy pants on. You, you, you poked me? You, you want to go for a round? All right, let's go. Put them up. And then he says, and, and, I, and I like this because he doesn't have to say anything else after this, but he keeps going. All God says is, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? And like, he could have stopped right there because that ends the, the conversation, right? Where, it's like, the pot, it's like the clay decided to argue with the potter about being a bowl. Once the, once the potter stopped being freaked out for the clay talking to him, what's he going to say? I'm the potter. I make you what I want to make you. End of story. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? That ends the argument right there. And yet God keeps on going, putting Job in his place. Not in an unloving way, but in a way that says you need to realize who you're talking to. And you don't understand. I am God. You are not. Don't try to put yourself in my place if you can't do the things that I do. God is not concerned with answering all of our questions. We have to understand that because there are questions we have that, are, that will never be answered. Paul here is concerned with believers being led astray by, by those plausible arguments. And, and if we let ourselves listen to it, the, the prosperity gospel will start to sound good after a while. Maybe, 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 maybe I do just need to have just a little bit more faith. Maybe, maybe there's something to it. Maybe, because after all, I could serve people better if I had more money, right? Like, God, I, can, I, can, I could give more money to your church if I had more money. So maybe I just need to have a little bit more faith. And God, that can start to take root in us. And Paul wants us to stand against that, stand firm in our faith so that these arguments don't take root. And these aren't new, not by any means, the, any stretch of the imagination. In fact, um, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, For the time is coming, this is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, if, if you're there. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves uh, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So Paul said, first century, this is coming. Be on the, be on the guard for it. This is coming. And so after he warns them, uh, warns the Colossians in, in verse 4, 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He goes to verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So get this. He's not saying they've been deceived. In fact, he's saying, he's saying I, I am encouraged. I'm, I'm with you in, though I'm, not, though I'm absent from you in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness. Now those words, good order and the firmness, are probably military terms. So the, the idea here is that Paul is like a general inspecting his troops before battle, and he likes what he sees. He's encouraged by what he sees. But now he tells them, get ready for the battle. Um, you're, you're in good order. You're firm in, the faith in, in your faith in Christ. Stay there. Get ready. Because the test is coming. And as we go through the, the coming weeks, he's going to flesh out a little bit about this false teaching and how they can protect themselves from it. And I think it has um, a very uh, significant place for us, especially given our world that is hostile to, um, not necessarily hostile to spirituality, but hostile to any kind of organized religion or anything that would claim that, my, that your truth is truth. Uh, and so we've, we've got we've to be firm. We've got to be ourselves in good order and firm in our faith in Christ Jesus. Um, now let me say, as I said earlier, my, my aim as your pastor is to be able to say, like Paul, that, that I struggle, that I exert myself for you the way an Olympic uh, athlete exerts himself in training. Um, that, that is my, that's my goal. That's my striving for you, that I would be able to say, I, I spend myself ministering and pastoring and serving so that I may present you mature in the faith. I'll be honest and tell you, I don't always, at the end of every week, I don't always say, man, I spent myself this week, but that's my goal. So let me be real honest and say, that's my goal, right? As a sinner, as a fallen human being, I don't always get there, but I'm working towards that. So that's, uh, pray for me in that, in that area. Let me say, like Paul, I can say that I rejoice because I see your good order and your firmness in the faith. I'm encouraged by what I've seen these first months. And so I would say stand firm, just like Paul does. Stand firm. Be rooted and established in the faith. Um, And so as we close this morning, as as Bob comes, um, I have two questions for us, really, to, Bob, you can go ahead and come. I have two questions, really, as we close. Um, one of them I asked last week, and, and I just want to put it out there again because it, it's where we are in the text. What do you struggle for? What do you exert yourself on? If there was an area of your life that you have to say, I, I exert myself the way an Olympic athlete exerts himself or herself um, as they train for the Olympics, what is that one thing. Let me ask this. Is it for Christ or is it for something else? If it's anything else, let, let, me, let me tell you just, just straight up, you are striving in vain if it's for anything other than Christ. And we went through this last week, so I'm not going to cover it, but, but if, if it's on anything, your family, your, um, your job, 
play, if it's any of those things, it's, it's passing away. It's not going to last. These things are good things when we keep them in the proper context, but if we take them out and try to make them ultimate, they become idols. And so we've got to make sure that the thing we're spending ourselves on is to exalt Christ in our family, in our work, in our play. That's the first question. What, what, what do you spend yourself on? The second is this. Where do you search for wisdom and knowledge? When it comes down to it, what, what are you looking to, to, to give your foundation, your, your wisdom, your knowledge? I said earlier, science is good, history is good, but none of these are supreme. They only find their place for us as we are grounded in Christ, as they encourage our faith in Christ. True wisdom True knowledge is only found in a growing, intimate relationship with Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Search for wisdom, search for knowledge. Search the scriptures to know God like you would search for a treasure buried in a field. It's that valuable. Let's pray together. Father, I ask this morning that you would give us a desire to search for this treasure that is wisdom and knowledge found in Christ. Father, we know that that's only available in a relationship, and so if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that's, that you would make that the starting place this morning, that you would encourage them, and that you would um, haunt their hearts to come and to give their lives to you. Thank you just for the opportunity to come and to study your word. Um, Father, help us to exert ourselves for your causes, that we might be people who exalt Christ in our homes, in our work, in our play, in the grocery line, where, wherever we find ourselves, that we would be gospel people, uh, people who are wholly given over to you and who have surrendered our lives that, that we might uh, make an impact in this world with the gospel. God, I pray you work on hearts, work on minds, maybe just show us where we need to realign ourselves this morning, um, where we need to uh, rearrange some priorities. Um, maybe where we just need to submit to your lordship in, in our life. And I pray that as we start this new year, you would, you would allow that commitment to be made firm and sure this morning. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Sunday morning worship service at First Baptist Church in Clayton. We are located at 223 Oak Street, and we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings for Sunday school at 945 and worship at 11. You can reach us at 374-9285 or at fbcclayton.com.